Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, a podcast all about the North American model of conservation and your chance to dive into conversations about trends, research, and outdoor activities. It's time to get wild with the 2021 Conservation Media Award-winning host, Jason Creighton. It's something we strongly believe in. Uh, there's a there's a, a really strong and succinct link between hunting and conservation. I mean, hunting generates billions and billions of dollars through excise taxes, through tags, through licenses, um, and that's why our state agencies, our fish and game agencies, are around. I mean, that's where they get their funding from. Welcome back to the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 107, Elk Conservation with the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Today, I'm going to be talking with Mark Hollyoke, and Mark has been with the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation for over nine years. He's currently serving as the Senior Director of Communications and Content, where he oversees all internal and external communication efforts. He also oversees the Bugle Magazine staff, and it makes sense working for this organization. He enjoys hunting, fishing, his family, sports, and just about anything outdoors. Prior to Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, he spent 24 years in broadcast news business, so he has a pretty good voice for this episode. I have to say, I'm a little jealous. We're going to cover everything from what is the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, their mission, uh, a brief history of elk conservation in the United States, uh, how we have been able to bring elk from near extinction and exportation uh, out of many areas to the current wonderful numbers we have now. And then, of course, you know, the great work, highlight some of the great work RMEF has done and how to join. So let's get right into it and talk to Mark. Before we keep going, a real quick question for you. Are you concerned with urban sprawl? Are you concerned with the threat of our increased human presence as put on wildlife and wild spaces? If so, an easy next step for you to try to help with this situation is to visit our Patreon page and become a monthly supporter. If you like this podcast, if you would like to help form a new nonprofit that helps combat and mitigate the effects of urbanization, visit patreon.com slash conserve the wild. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash conserve the wild. Go visit today and become a sponsor. All right, welcome back, everyone. And as you heard in the intro, we have a wonderful gentleman from the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation joining us today. Mark, how's it going out there in the West? Uh, it's good. It's good to be with you. Appreciate the opportunity. Hey, yeah. Uh, you know, I've been, as I sort of mentioned, uh, an on-again, off-again member of Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Uh, it's one of those organizations that I 
really believe wholeheartedly in the mission and, and what everyone in your organization is doing. Unfortunately, I'm not always on top of my game and, and renewing my dues. So I can't say I'm a continual member. I'm, I've had, you know, a month or two lapse here or there in the last 10 years, but um, I, I really wanted to highlight your organization because you do such great work. So for the listeners out there, can you just sort of let everyone know what, you know, the sort of elevator speech of what is the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation? Well, we are a hunter-based conservation group, and our mission is to ensure the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. So, so we do that um, through several different approaches, uh, kind of our core programs, uh, through protecting land, through enhancing habitat, um, through supporting wildlife management and research, and also through uh, supporting hunting heritage type projects. So, you know, a lot of sponsorships of, you know, kids camps and shooting teams and, you know, mentored hunts and all those kinds of things that will, that will get folks out, out uh, outdoors. And, and I guess just another thing is just maybe a, a bit of a misnomer. Uh, a, a lot of people think that because of our name that, you know, we're, we're all about being in the West in the Rocky Mountains in that area. And we are, except we're that way across the entire country. So if you took the U.S. and kind of cut it in thirds, our membership is is probably within 10 to 15,000 members in the West as it is in the Midwest, as it is in the East. So so wherever you live across the United States, uh, chances are that there's an RMEF chapter somewhere nearby. We have more than 500 chapters and our, our volunteers crack the whip and, and just do so many great things on that front. So, so from coast to coast and, and north to south, um, we're pretty much there. And, and I guess that's, important because uh, I look at it sort of two ways why you want sort of a nationwide membership. Um, One, a lot of people like myself, you know, that live out east, we dream of and hope to go hunting in the west, you know, because of the landscapes and because of, of the game that's out there. But we also now have elk in other places other than just the Rocky Mountains. Right. There's, there's, wild free ranging elk in 27, 28 states now. You know, a lot of people may not realize it. they're in Arkansas, they're in Oklahoma, and of course they're across the West, but they're in, they're in Missouri, they're in Virginia, they're in West Virginia. There's a whole slew of them in Kentucky, in fact, and of course uh, up your way in Pennsylvania. So uh, throughout the Great Lakes states as well. And, and so you have elk that are, they're, they're not in every place they used to be and they don't necessarily belong in every place across their historic range, just because there's not enough habitat or for other reasons. Uh, but there are elk uh, across much of the nation. So let's talk about those elk across the nation. I mean, are, are they all the same kind of elk? I mean, they're all in the elk family, right? The, the elk section of the servant family. Um, but are they all the same sort of subspecies of elk or are there different types of elk in the United States? You know, there used to be a different species of elk. Uh, several of them have gone away just because when we had this been big influx of, you know, folks moving from Europe and coming over and colonizing the states and then moving west. And then there was a, you know, a bit of an impact made as, as folks moved west. But uh, generally speaking, uh, most of the elk are, were pretty much down to Rocky Mountain elk, Roosevelt elk. And then there's some Thule elk. Uh, and if you look at them, you know, from 100 yards away, you would, or 50 yards away, you'd say, that's an elk, you know, and you get up closer, unless they're right next to each other, you might not notice the difference. But there's the Thule elk of just a little, a little strip in, uh, 
in California. Uh, Roosevelt elk are kind of Oregon, Washington centric, and you've got Rocky Mountain elk pretty much everywhere else. Back in the back in the old days, we had the Eastern elk and the Merriam elk, and 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 they're just not around anymore. So let's talk a little bit about that uh, about the history of elk and, and you know sort of bringing them back from you know a, a very precipitous amount of elk. I mean, we, you know, you mentioned these different species, types of elk that were in the United States that we no longer have. And there was a time when we had very few elk on the landscape on the entire continent. Uh, Where are we, you know, where are we now compared to where we were even, you know, 100 or 150 years ago? And how did we, spoiler alert, increase the numbers of the elk that we have now? Well, back in the day, uh, before the European settlement, if you want to call it that, happened. Uh, you know, there were approximately 10 million elk, and they were spread everywhere across the plains and the mountains, all over the place. Uh, and as those settlers, you know, moved west, and there was much more of an impact on the the elk numbers, it got down to the point that because of, you know, the commercialization of uh, of, of elk and other species as well, that a lot of those numbers just slipped down to just very few. Um, to the point that there, there just weren't that many left, tens of thousands and mostly in small pockets were left. And so around the, the turn of the century, not this last century, but the other turn of the century, of course, around the you know, 1900s, early 1900s, you know, a lot of people were waking up saying, we have to do something. We have, you know, these wildlife are going away. And so you know, we have to stop the, the commercialization of wildlife and poaching and those sorts of things. And, and so, you know, when you're down to about 40,000 elk, that's really not many from 10 million. So, you know, regulations were enforced, um, hunting rules put in place, um, and people were just smarter and started to pay attention and allowed the animals to start to reproduce. And then you had those little pockets of elk. Of course, Yellowstone was kind of one of the main places where they were still, uh, were still around. And, and so, that was used as kind of a seed herd. And they were taken and put in Arizona and shipped here and shipped there and moved all over. And eventually these, these pockets of elk, elk started to grow and grow. And because of the, the strict regulations behind them, the hunting regulations, if hunting was even allowed at a certain point, um, then those numbers could grow and grow and get to, where the, to the point to where they were. And, and when the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation came along, we, as an organization, were officially established in 1984. Um, you know, there were, there were about 520, 540,000 elk. And so, you know, we, we've raised funds and put on the ground to enhance habitat. We've helped out with elk restoration and tried to protect more lands. And today we have more than a million elk. So are we where we used to be? No, we're not close. Are we, are we a lot better than the early 1900s? You bet we are. And in a lot of places, um, elk are, are just doing so well and even where, where I sit right now, I'm in Western Montana. There are places in Montana where they're above objective and they need to, they need to do, the wildlife managers are doing all they can to try and keep those numbers so they match up best with the habitat around them. So, so all in all, it, it's been quite a journey. Um, as an organization, we're just, we're happy to be there. We think the elk is a, is a pretty darn cool animal um, and um, understand and realize that a lot of people have aspirations to come out and see them and, and experience them and hunt them. And um, we, we just appreciate our part in it and, and we enjoy what we do. So uh, the RMEF, has, as, as you mentioned, has taken 
a role in helping with some of the reintroductions, right? Whether that's through funding or, um, you know, volunteers, things like that. I mean, I feel like that's got to be a big production, right? To, to trap some elk, uh, move them to a completely different area, um, try to put them in a situation where they're going to not just survive, but, but thrive. And I'm sure that's extremely expensive as well. Can you speak to any of the details involved in the, you know, sort of moving some of the elk to other and new ranges? Yeah. Um, so, so I guess you know, while we continue to support uh, wild free ranging elk, wherever they are and try and put money on the ground to enhance their habitat, and protect what lands uh, that we can. Specifically, we've been involved in, in a number of uh, restorations in, in different states. Um, for example, let's see, Kentucky, Missouri, uh, Wisconsin. Um, we've got uh, Virginia, West Virginia, Tennessee, North Carolina. Those are, those are some of the few. And, and really when you, as a, as a conservation group that tries to best stand up for a specific species when you can put that species back on the ground in its historic range and they thrive that's like one of the that's kind of like a calling card it's, that's one of the best things that, that you can do as an organization and it's interesting it's tricky uh in this day and age we're seeing a lot less movement of elk around because of chronic wasting disease and so i'm not sure how much that's going to happen going forward uh, but if you do look back, there's just some some crazy, crazy stories. Um, one of the, I mentioned Kentucky earlier, I'll just use that as an example. A lot of people don't know, but the largest elk herd uh, east of the Mississippi is in Kentucky. And uh, in, in the 1990s, there weren't any at all there. But yet today, you know, here we are, what, 30 years later, and there's more than 11,000. So let me just tell you kind of a funky story. It, it's funny because I was at a conference and I, I sat down and just happened to sit down at the same table with, with uh, three good old boys who worked for Kentucky Fish and Wildlife. And they told me this story. They said, they said back in 1997, when they first moved elk, and this gives you an idea of some of the logistics and the challenges and how people just didn't, didn't and don't understand. So they first moved elk. Uh, it was, I think they had seven, seven to 10 elk that they moved from Kansas. And they were moving them from Kentucky. So they had them in they had them in a couple of, uh, of semis, you know, kind of like you'd see one that semis that are hauling cattle. And so they had elk. And, and so they were going along and they had a really finite window, like they were changing drivers and they were booking through uh, the United States to try and get these, these elk in Kentucky. And so they get in Indiana and a member of law enforcement pulls them over because they see that there's like noses that are sticking up in the holes in the side of the, of the trailer. And there's tongues that are, they're sticking out because it was raining. And so they were trying to get a drink from the outside. And so the, the member of the law enforcement stops them and says, look, we understand what this, you know, moving livestock is, is about. You need to open the doors and let those elk out, let them wander around, let them get a drink and then herd them back in. And the driver's like, no, I can't do that. You can imagine that. Yeah. Like that's even going to happen. So anyway, he, he um, somehow got by that obstacle and, and got the truck going again and got them to Kentucky. And the people who were in Kentucky were nervous because they were behind schedule because of stops like this. So, so that's just one tiny little tale of, of, of moving animals and how it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a really challenging and different thing to do. Having done that, we've had a lot of success with that since because people understand that better. 
and there is significant expense and there is significant testing that has to go on. Animals have to be tested. Some There was some animals that were recently within the last three or four years taken and captured in Arizona and taken to West Virginia. And so they had to take them, capture them, uh, which in itself is a process, put them in a pen, test them, monitor them, make sure there's no diseases or anything, then put them in trucks, run them to West Virginia, release them, put them in a pen, test them, make sure everything's good. And then after a holding period for so long, open the doors and let them out. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a process and a half. And the thing that's, that's, that's really cool about it is we've had so many states, so many places where our volunteers, these are the folks that, that man our banquets. Um, and so they're involved in a lot of planning for, for banquet activity to raise those funds we put on the ground, but they get out there and they're the ones that are helping capture the animals, hold them down, help biologists test them, that sort of thing. And so um, that's a really cool deal as well. And I can just imagine, you know, if couldn't get, if, if you couldn't get around that law enforcement agent, you know, trying to get them to let them out to get a drink. And, you know, now all of a sudden you have elk reintroduced in Indiana where they weren't supposed to be. <laughs> yeah. Talk about wild free range. And maybe ranching all over. <laughs> oh man. So I, I feel like I'd be remiss if we didn't at least broach a subject um, since you already brought it up. CWD is, you know, a nationwide issue that everyone seems to be talking about um, in one form or another. Um, can you give any information as far as what our, how RMEF stands with CWD and, and, and elk? You know, we're all about doing all we can to find out what we can about it. What we know about it right now is it's a, it's a disease that exists among wildlife species, you know, elk and deer and moose, and, um, and it's fatal. It, it eventually just takes a toll. And so uh, there, there are no cases of it, of it making the jump from, from animals to humans. We know that, um, but we don't know a lot of other things about it exactly, you know, how it's, how it's formed or how it's created. We do know that, you know, it can, it can gets in the soils, for example. I mean, that's one way, you know, through saliva of animals, which crosses the landscape all over the place. There's just too many, there's more questions than answers. And a lot of the, the state wildlife agencies are just, this is a big challenge. This is probably the number one, number two challenge they have right now. You know, funding is probably number one, how they continue to operate. And, and the other would be, we have this mysterious illness that's out there that's spreading. Um, what does it mean exactly? So, you know, we, we've committed uh, a, a great deal of funding toward research. There's different research projects that are going on. We've been part of the CWD coalition if you go to cwd.org, you can read all about it. We've helped fund that, and, and we just want to promote all we can among our, our researchers and biologists and the state agencies and our federal agencies as well, um, just to continue to try and find out what we can. It, it's, it's frustrating that we don't have answers, but look at where we are now as compared to where we were 15 years ago when, when that term came up and everyone was like, what? So at least now we're getting a little bit of a grasp on it, but it, but it is a major challenge. All right, let's get, let's go back to a little bit more happy talk. You mentioned uh, a lot of the habitat work that RMEF is doing. What, I mean, can, can you give an example or two of some positive habitat work that's being done on the landscape to benefit elk and then, you know, by default, other species that use that same landscape? 
you know, we have so many ongoing projects in so many places. Um, and there's all sorts of different conservation tools we use when it comes to um, comes to managing the landscapes that are out there. We strongly believe in active forest management. We don't believe in hands-off. Um, I mean, there, there are places, obviously, backcountry wilderness areas where, where hands are off, but at the same time, uh, a lot of our, our national forest lands, our Bureau of Land Management lands, and a lot of state-owned land, uh, if you live in parts of the country where, those, where there is a lot more public land, you've got a lot of uh, down and decadent trees that are on the ground, um, or a lot of the vegetation is overly thick. Um, we've had decades upon decades upon decades of fire suppression. It used to be back in the day that you know fires would burn and, and they would let them burn, so to speak. And there was this change in ideology to anytime there's any flame anywhere, jump on it and kill it. And so we have these, these stretches of forest land that are just so thick. And, and the problem with that is, is if the canopy up high in the forest is so thick, that means the sun can't get through and it's not going to hit the forest floor, which means you won't have much on the forest floor in the forms of grasses and shrubs and vegetation and that kind of growth that, that's really good for elk and for deer and for all sorts of critters, small critters and you know mammals and birds and all sorts of other things. So we, we some of our tools that we, we use uh, in conjunction with our partners, we use a lot of prescribed burning, a lot of forest thinning, uh, a lot of noxious weed treatments. Uh, we see, I don't know if you have cheat grass back east, but this nasty little dark grass that, uh, dead looking grass that kind of gets stuck in your socks a lot. A lot of people who are out west know what that is, but, but it, it, when it grows and it's basically it dies once it grows and it's really flammable and there's no nutrition in it. I mean, a, a deer, I have deer all around my house. They don't eat the stuff if it's anywhere close by. I mean, and, and so what we try to do is, is to get in there and, and implement, you know, different types of uh, treatments and methods that, that are going to spruce that up, that are going to put more vegetation on the ground, that's going to make it better uh, for elk and other wildlife. And, and so if you're talking about, you know, big groups of aspen trees, which elk love, it's candy, it's, it's candy central for them and for deer, um, or if you have just wide stretches of, of uh, landscape like Nevada, Southern Utah, for example, where there's a lot of sagebrush, but there's a lot of, at the same time, a lot of encroaching junipers or pinions that are going in there and pushing out that historic sagebrush and the, and the uh, natural grasses that are out there. And so we, we, we work with our agencies to try and thin some of those encroaching conifers, uh, to thin forests, and to just make them overall more healthy. If you make a forest more healthy, it's good for wildlife all around. Yeah, I can't agree more. Uh, you know, you mentioned some elk herds in the Southwest and uh, I can't help but think of, you know, the extended droughts that we've had. Um, so is some of that habitat work also trying to put some water on the landscape to, to sort yeah. of buoy the elk herds during these times of prolonged drought? Absolutely. You know, that's, that's one of the things that our volunteers are, are really involved with. Um, I just, I just put together a news release uh, for some of our work we did in New Mexico and we sent that out, I think it was last week, but that just gives you an example of, of uh, some of our volunteers met in uh, two, three different locations just within the last couple of months and, and constructed or repaired old um, wildlife water guzzlers, which are their water catchment systems. Some of them 
kind of look like little spaceships for lack of a better term. They also like a little umbrella over the top, but, and so it, it's, it's built in such a way that it, it covers a certain amount of area. And so when it rains, it catches the water and puts it down into a pipeline, puts it out in a tank or a holding area. And so, uh, and a lot of those holding areas too, depending on where it's located, if it's, if it's, little isolated, you know, we'll leave it be. But if it's in a place where there's livestock, we'll build fencing around those water catchment systems, which, but there's a place where elk and deer can jump over it, you know, or an antelope can crawl under it, but not where a cow can plow through it, for example, because most ranchers who have cattle are going to have a watering source and the wildlife will go there as well. So uh, throughout New Mexico, in Arizona, in Utah, uh, in other places, especially in the Southwest, but also up in the Dakotas as well, just places where it can really be dry for a prolonged period. There are a number of, of wildlife water guzzlers and water catchment systems that are put in place. And, and we look for those opportunities and try and put funding on the ground there. And if we have volunteers nearby, we try to get them involved and, and they love getting out there, pulling on their boots and putting on their work gloves and, and, and helping. Now, Mark, you're the, uh, the Senior Director of Communications and Content, and one of the phrases that came out, I want to say, over the last couple of years uh, from you guys that I think is awesome is hunting is conservation. Uh, did you come up with that, or was that you know, one of your team members? I'd love to take credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, where did that come from? Um, we, we officially came out with that while I was here. I've, I've been here nine and a half years now. We, we really pushed it out in kind of a strong way and then started sending out, you know, photos and infographics and videos and tidbits of information to talk about how hunting is conservation. So it hasn't been around a real long time. I'd say probably within the last, well, on, on a higher visibility uh, level, probably in the last, you know, eight years or so, but maybe the last 10 or 12 years. It's something we strongly believe in. Uh, there's a, there's a, a really strong and succinct link between hunting and conservation. I mean, hunting generates billions and billions of dollars through excise taxes, through tags, through licenses. Um, and that's why our state agencies, our fish and game agencies are around. I mean, that's where they get their funding from is those excise taxes you know, on, on guns and ammunition, archery equipment. And there's also an excise tax on, on some, some fishing equipment as well. So that helps as, as well. But um, hunting, hunting historically uh, above and beyond has been the main driver um, for conservation. And when we say for conservation work for state um, fish and game agencies, we're talking about the way that they manage wildlife. I mean, that's, that's the core of why we have the greatest wildlife numbers in the world and, and why we have the greatest wildlife populations in the world is because the, hunt, the funding is generated by hunters and not just the funding, but hunters are, are out there. They're, they're in the woods. Um, they're on mountain ridges. Um, they're, you know, on the plains and they love the land and they continue to pay um, almost like a, a user pay system, it, so to speak. It's not exactly that, but it, you know, the, we have so many of these public lands that are out there and, and state parks and other things because of funds that have been generated by hunters. And so you don't have to hunt to go out there and enjoy the National Forest or Bureau of Land Management lands or your, your, your state-owned lands. But, but hunting has had a great deal to do with acquiring and making that possible. Yeah, and I feel like um, it, this is both in regards to hunters and non-hunters, you know, 
lot of people look at state agencies and think that they're only their their sole reason of exist, existence is to manage game species but they're not they're managing all the species that fall within that state's borders um, and the game species are what are funding the conservation efforts that also help non-game species as well. Absolutely. You know, so many of our projects, when they come down the pipeline, I mean, it's in our mission statement, you know, ensure the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat and our hunting heritage. And so many of our projects that come down the pipeline, we'll talk about, um, you know, this particular landscape is used by you know, spotted frogs by this type of butterfly, by this endangered bird, by these type of fish, um, that, that there's a huge, huge trickle down effect. And yeah, we do focus on elk, of course we do. Uh, but the work that we do, when you go in and you take a given segment of land and you apply fire thinning, noxious weed treatment, uh, uh, wildlife water deserts, whatever, I mean, that's going to help the owl, it's going to help mice, it's going to help squirrels, it's going to help bears, it's, it's, it's across the spectrum. And so while we continue to, to push for and stand for and plug elk, we know that our work at the same time benefits a myriad of other species. All right, so I know everyone's listening to this and they're thinking, I like hearing this. I know all this because I'm already a member of RMEF, but for those that may be listening that aren't a member, why should they join Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation? I would say if you care for the outdoors and uh, you appreciate wild landscapes, that's what we're about. Um, you know, we love uh, being outside. Um, we love animals. Uh, do we love hunting? Yes, absolutely. Uh, me, I love to fish too. I love to fly fish. Uh, but I appreciate the outdoors and that's, that's really what we're about. Our, our mission statement, you know, again, talks about elk, but it talks about other animals too. And so, um, you know, not all of our members are hunters and that's, that's great. That's fine. But those that aren't understand that link that, that exists between hunting and conservation and, um, they're more than happy to support the cause. And so, if you appreciate the outdoors, if, if you want to be involved with a group that takes those funds and puts them back on the ground uh, and has measurable positive impact, um, that's who we are. All right. So if someone wants to join, how do they join? And then what are those little like extra breadcrumbs that we throw out to, to keep them to stick around that they're like, oh, yeah, this is what I, you know, this is what I'm getting uh, as I'm air quoting that for being a part of Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Well, the easiest way is to just go to our website, which is rmef.org. And uh, once you're on there, you'll see a, a join button or how do I get involved button. And you can see if you want to become a volunteer or how you want to join, or there's various membership levels. It's really kind of, you know, your call for the, for the user who, who wants to go, go check it out. Um, and so, you know, we would steer people that way uh, as far as how we join, how to join. And then, just depends on the level they really want to be involved. Um, you know, if, if you want to volunteer and help out with your local banquet and help plan it, they're, they're a lot of fun. You get together and you have auctions and, um, you know, sometimes some entertainment and dinner and you get to meet with a lot of like-minded folks, you know, or you can get on the ground and do some work. Um, let me, let me tell you. So just this summer, um, uh, about 
oh, it's about an hour and a half west of here where I'm sitting um, in, in Western Montana. It's on the border of Idaho and Montana. This is just one example of one volunteer project. So there's, there's a place called the Hiawatha Trail and it's a, it's a, it's a world-renowned bike trail that goes along the tops of the mountains. And it used to sit on the Milwaukee Road Railway back in the day. So there was a rail line that went through there and they have these tunnels. The first tunnel you go through is a, a mile and a half long. And then there's other tunnels and there's trestles. It's, it's a beautiful place to go. But back in the day when this was uh, an active railroad, so this was after the big fires of 1910, which burned like 3 million acres out here and scorched the whole everything out here. But they decided that those railways going through those mountain passes and stuff, you know, might be kicking up some fires I mean, just because trains on, you know, railways and dry grasses, that's what happens. So they changed it, made an electrified, uh, it was an electrified railroad. So they had these power posts that would go along parallel to the railway line. And they, on these power posts were these 11 electrical wire, or nine electrical wires and the trains kind of like a, kind of like the, the, the car that goes through downtown San Francisco, or at least back in the day used to be electrified as well. So the, the trains were like through the tops of the mountains. Well, that was uh, abandoned over time. And those wires just fell down on the ground. So a couple of years ago, we had a, a member who was elk hunting up there and he came across a, uh, a mature bull that, uh, had gotten wrapped up in those wires. And it was so, the, the picture's incredible. There's so much wire so tightly wound around its antlers that it, it struggled and it died there. So we have miles and miles of wire. So one of the things that we did this summer, and this was, this was actually my, even though I've been here nine years, it was the first time I went and did one of these volunteer activities. I went and took my grandson, who's eight at the time, and met up with some other volunteers and members and kids and climbed these, these steep faces and pulled this, these wires out from underneath down trees and the shrubs had grown through them. And it was hard, hard work. But when we were done, we had pickups full of this wires and, and, and reels of reels of wire that we could take off and go, you know, recycle and other animals wouldn't be, wouldn't be caught up on the landscape, trying to get across the landscape because of that. So that's just another way you can get involved. There's all sorts of volunteer activities, but, but to me, that was just way fun, just way, way fun and hard work. And it was a hot day, but it was a good day. So just one example. Yeah. It, you know, you mentioned volunteer work and, and all that, and I can guarantee you that no one is thinking picking up down wires from an old electric train track as, you know, benef something that would be beneficial to elk, right? Like that's just not something that crosses your mind. Yeah. Um, that, a that's different. a great, yeah, that's a great example of just how there's so many different ways that you can give back. Um, one of the things that that I really enjoy in being a member is uh, receiving the Bugle magazine. Uh, so can you just tell everyone what they're going to get when they join, um, how often it comes, what kind of content they can find in there, and, and why they're going to enjoy it? Yeah, that's really our number one member benefit is the magazine. It comes out every other month. And it's a, it's a, it's a strapping magazine. It's uh, it, it's not, you know, 30 pages. It's more like 130 pages, or I think our all time record was like 208 pages or something, but they're usually, they're pretty fat and um, they're loaded with, uh, with hunting stories and, you know, not just your, you know, there I was driving on the road and then I walked in a mile and shot this, but usually, you know, with, with some sort of really interesting hook and, 
and that, that talks about challenges that elk hunters have because boy if you chase elk that's a hard thing to do they're hard to see and they're hard to catch and it's hard to get one but they taste good anyway that's another story but so we we, we have a lot of hunting in there uh hunting stories we talk a lot about our, our conservation projects so the members know where their money's going um you know we, we talk about specific projects and specific places and the impact that that has on the landscape. And then there's just lots of other, uh, I mean, we have photo essays and lots of, lots of other little portions of the magazine. We have one that's called, um, it, it's, it's about ethics and, and hunting and, and pe people's different challenges they have when they're out hunting. If they see something that's on the wrong side of the fence or they come across an animal that's freshly wounded or they they're somewhere isolated and you know do i really take this shot is this the smartest thing to do and so there's we have we have a lot of those type of, of submissions as well that really get you thinking about you know if you hunt why you hunt and how do you do it do you do it in a in an upstanding ethical kind of way uh, and what do you learn along the way so we try to be all encompassing there um, so that's that's really the, the main member benefit um, of course, we'd love it for our members to be involved in banquets as well. And we also have a, a stout group of outdoor industry supporters who stand with us, who support us and support our mission. And because of that, they're more than willing to uh, offer some of their product at discounts for people who are members. And so, you know, if, if you're talking Browning or, or Yeti or loophole scopes, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And so, they work with as well and, and, and they, they offer those incentives to members who, who, if you join, then you can get, you know, X percent off of this list of projects. And then they also have, a lot of them have uh, uh, different products that if they sell them, then they automatically give us a percentage of the sale and we take those funds and put those funds on the ground. So, so it's, it's our members, it's our volunteers, it's our supporters, it's philanthropic giving and others that help us do what we do. And we're just appreciative of, of everyone who does that. And being a member um, means you stand for something. It means you stand for, for positive work and enhancing and improving um, the, the landscapes that are out there. Yeah, the two things I love about Bugle Magazine, uh, one, you mentioned the heft of the magazine. It's not heft and filled with a ton of just advertisements. Um, there's a lot of good content in all those pages, which is refreshing. Um, and then the other thing is just the, the imagery is, is stunning. Some of the most beautiful pictures of elk and habitat and landscape that, that I've ever seen in a magazine. So, um, you know, though, if for nothing else, if you like looking at tremendously stunning pictures, uh, definitely join so you can get that Bugle magazine. Uh, before I let you go, Mark, uh, you work at RMEF. Uh, I'm assuming that you've hunted elk and that you've been successful a time or two. So my last final parting question for you is, what is your go-to elk recipe? My go-to elk recipe? Yes. Oh, wow. You know, this is really basic. <laughs> sometimes, basic I, sometimes basic is the best. This is what my wife loves. Okay. I, I'm not the kind of guy I'm, I'm not, even though, and we do offer recipes in, in every episode or every uh, issue of Bugle and, and you can, you can, there's a wide range of, it just depends on 
how crazy you want to go and how much time you want to spend to maybe not. Um, I, I loved, uh, I, I love it when it's smoked. But what I was going to say, and this is in its most simplistic form, if you've never had elk before, um, if you grind it, at least at my house, my wife does not like having, having any, any additional fats put in. You know, a lot of people will put in a certain amount of pork fat and this kind of thing, which makes the meat stick together. And it's better for burgers or for flavor or whatever. She likes it straight up. So if you've, if you've, never, if you've never had elk before, so I can, I'll shoot a, a, a designated animal, I'll bring it home. I'll take some of it and make, you know, roasts and steaks and jerky and stew meat and all this stuff. But then I'll grind a bit of it. And when I grind it, I don't put anything in it. I'm, I'm probably the exception. Everyone else is probably like, this guy's a moron. But I don't put anything in it. But when you cook up elk in a pan, unlike beef, you know, when you, when you cook up beef, there's a lot of grease in there. There's no grease with elk. There's barely anything at all. And so what my wife loves more than anything is when I do that, I cook it up and we just have taco salad with it. You know, you might throw in a little bit of seasoning, depending on the seasoning wants that she likes. And that's, that's its most simplistic form for me, other than just throwing something on the barbecue or putting it on my smoker. You, anything taco related, right? Um, <laughs> you can't go wrong with that. So that, that, that's a great one. I know, um, you know, for me, um, when I was younger, my dad and grandfather and uncle all um, were successful on an elk hunt in Montana um, when I was younger. So we, we had a lot of elk meat in the freezers and um, we used to make a lot of chili uh, with that elk meat mm -hmm. and that chili just, man, I could, I'm, I will remember that taste until the day I die. Um, we've tried to recreate that same recipe with, you know, with some deer meat and it, while it's still good, it's just not quite the same. Elk just has a little bit, it just adds something a little extra that maybe it's just the taste of the mountains. I don't know. It's, you know, it's interesting and, and deer is a little different, you know, it can be a little bit gamey elk really isn't. And it's, mm -hmm. It's, it's different than beef. It's just, it's high organic, it's high in protein, it's low in fat, and it's lower in fat than just about any other animal out there, deer, turkey, ducks, anything. So it, it's just a healthy, it's a healthy meat that's good for you. And, you know, it's not injected with who knows what, uh, with, if something goes through the man-made process or the man-raised process, but uh, it, it's, it's just really good. I mean, I don't know what else to say. It's really good. <laughs> All right, Mark. Well, hey, thanks for joining us. Uh, I, I really appreciate it. I'm sure the listeners are going to love to hear uh, about uh, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and, um, you know, keep up the good work. I, I love the organization and uh, you guys are doing great things. Keep it rolling. Appreciate it. Thank you. That'll do it for today's episode. I want to thank you all for listening. And I have to thank Mark for coming on and talking about RMEF. Uh, if you are not a member, you got to join. Click that link in the episode details and join. If nothing else, that $35 that, that it costs is going to be worth every penny just from Bugle Magazine. It, the pictures are stunning. The stories are amazing. The recipes are great. Unfortunately, I don't have a whole lot of elk meat to utilize the recipes in their true form, but you know, I adapt them for venison and even every once in a while, a little bit of beef, uh, as well. You know, this is a great organization. They have done amazing things and you need to be a part of it. 
if you enjoy conservation, you need to be a part of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation because of the work that they have historically done and the work that they continue to do. So please hit that link in the episode details and join the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. And until next week, take someone outside and stay wild.